Hey guys, Brandon here. We'll get you to the show in just a second. And if you want to listen to that 90s baseball pod early and ad-free, make sure to sign up at patreon.com slash that 90s baseball pod. Subscribers at any level get the show as soon as it's created, early and ad-free. Now, for our sponsors, we have eParade, which is reasonably priced, trendy kitchenware. That's E-P-A-R-E dot com. Promo code 10T90BP10. So that 90s baseball pod, T90BP, with 10 on either side. Symbol.app, that's S-I-M-B-U-L-L dot app, is the stock market for sports. If you use the promo code Bender, you get a free week of Symbol Gold. Hinterland Coffee in Minnesota is a freshly roasted coffee experience every single week. Monthly subscriptions get 10% off. Go to hinterlandmn.com. Three-star sports cards, you can find them online or in person in Bloomington on Lindale Avenue or in Little Canada on Rice Street or threestarsportscards.com. And finally, Humility Chains. Royce Lewis's mom, Cindy, makes stylish, affordable chains and necklaces and bracelets that go, uh, the proceeds go directly to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer. So a portion, again, of those proceeds go to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer cancer more than 20 styles of chains and bracelets are available they're affordable they look great i'm wearing mine right now i highly recommend them it's humility chains on etsy so look up etsy and then search for humility chains and now on to your show back again for another episode of that 90s baseball pod i am your host brandon warren and you can find me on twitter at brandon underscore w-a-r-n-e and across the screen from me if you're watching on youtube mr greg olson greg how are you doing how, how do i sound I'm, I'm gonna ask listeners for some grace because i've been dealing with the cove this week starting to feel better um but if i sound a little funny or if i've got the foggy brain i've got a reason yeah, no, you sound great. I'm glad you're feeling better. Uh, yeah, after last week where we didn't have any of your audio, it was it was a nice, quiet, you know, Zoom call. So it, it was it was pretty good. Yeah, and we figured, um, you know, we really liked going with left-handed pitchers, so I think we stuck with another one, uh, and a pretty darn good one too. Went a couple picks after you in the 1988 MLB draft. We are so delighted to welcome former big league lefty Jim Abbott to the program. Jim, thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk to you guys a little scared about the questions that might come my way from Ole. He's got some dark <laughs> secrets uh, in, the, in the closet there, but uh, no, hopefully we can keep it clean. Wouldn't do that to you, brother. Uh, Jim, Jim and I go back to 1987, the Pan Am games. He was 
playing for Michigan. I was playing for Auburn and um, got lucky enough to sit next to the man. And with uh, little to no social media and newspapers, about the only thing I knew about him was what Baseball America was talking about. And uh, he came off of the Golden Spikes that year, sitting next to him in a room in Millington, Tennessee. And uh, we did, they had a couple guys that were teammates and neither one of us did. So kind of looked at each other going, you want a room? And, <laughs> and after that, one of my best friends in the game, a golf partner out in Southern California. So it's been a, a 25 years of a solid relationship as friends. Now, I got to be honest, every time I hear players from like, let's say your, your era specifically talked about as teammates, I swear they're always listed as roommates. Like uh, th there was an old wrestling episode where like Kevin Green and, and Bill Goldberg were on WCW and they're like, oh yeah, we were roommates back with the team. Like I swear everybody gets talked to uh, talked about as roommates. So it always just makes me laugh when people say they were roommates back in those days, not only because they don't really, I think have roommates anymore, but it just seemed like those were the guys who gravitated toward each other. And that story always kind of follows them that way. Well, I mean, you got roommates that you like and you don't like, and, and, you know, everybody, <laughs> everybody has those, but uh, Jim and I hit it off. And man, when you're in a Navy dorm in, ten, in, it's in Western Tennessee, close to Memphis. The only television I think was downstairs in the main room. There wasn't a whole lot to do. You went and practiced, you worked out, you did all your stuff, and you came back and you hung with the boys up in the dorm. So, uh, and we got other stories with Jim as a roommate. And we'll get wasn't, there a, wasn't there a vending machine with beer in it down there too somewhere? I mean, I think some of the guys got involved in that. I don't remember. You and I definitely stayed away, but uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, it, only reason we couldn't find the coins needed to get in. But yeah. uh, uh, so, Jim, Jim, your U of uh, Michigan influence is obvious, even in your Twitter handle, which is at J Abbott UM. Uh, Got to ask you: You think uh, Jim Harbaugh is going anywhere? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Got to ask. You know, it changes every day, it seems like, but uh, a little worrying that he hasn't made seemed to make a decision. Yeah. Uh, it was such a great year this year, um, finally, for them to kind of overcome some of the uh, things that they've been taking a lot of criticism for over for the past, during his tenure, not beating Ohio State, not winning a Big Ten championship, mm -hmm. uh, not going to the CFP. So, you know, he checked a lot of boxes, and, and I know his stock is high, but uh, – I hope he stays in Michigan. He's uh, he's a lot of fun to watch. He brings I don't care what you think about him. He brings a lot of interest and excitement to uh, whatever program he's involved with. Yeah, better better that he's checking boxes rather than packing boxes. There's no no question about that. Um, I saw his his brother's getting an extension in the NFL, so we'll see if they renew that. But um, Michigan, I mean, it's pretty obvious why you chose Michigan. You were you were from Michigan, but was there ever a thought in your mind of not being a Wolverine? Uh, not really. You know, I, I grew up a Michigan fan. I grew up about 45 minutes from Ann Arbor. Um, one of my hometown heroes was a guy named Rick Leach who played uh, quarterback oh, yeah. uh, at Michigan. He was a three-sport uh, three all-state player in, in, in Flint at a different high school than I went to. But uh, he was just, old, just enough older than me to kind of be my hero, and that kind of – uh, entrenched my uh, enthusiasm for the university. And, I, you know, I wasn't incredibly um, 
a high recruit. I, I was scouted by some of the Midwest teams and, and Michigan was by far the best program that offered me a chance. And, and uh, as we were talking before, a lot of great players were there. Barry Larkin was there at the time and Cal Morris and Casey Close. And uh, it was kind of a no brainer. Well, and we talked to, who was it, Oli, that said that they were looking at colleges and they're like, well, I'm meeting these guys, but they're not going to be there anymore. So why would I want to go and play where all the great guys have just left? I feel like you going into that was, that was me talking about Mississippi State. That, that's right. That's right. Like, I think they got dudes all over <laughs> the yard. And they're, they're all going to be gone. So, yeah, I think um, we were talking to Big Ben that day, Ben McDonald. And you were talking about why you landed where you did and who had recruited you. Um, so in some respects, though, Michigan was losing a guy who, yeah, he ended up playing a pretty good shortstop in Barry Larkin, but you played with some pretty good guys there. Uh, Hal Morris, Scott Kamenicki, you know, this is the nineties baseball pod. People are going to remember these names, but, um, yeah, so, some good opportunities for you to play with some pretty great players, but you just missed out on old Barry Larkin. Yeah. I, yeah. I went down there on a recruiting trip and, and, uh, my, I played Connie Mack baseball in high school and my coach actually caught at Michigan. So that was another connection. <laughs> And wow. we went down there and they had, they were hosting a regional and Barry Larkin was playing and it was just, he was just so next level. It was, you know, he, he stood out on the field and there was a gracefulness about the way he played shortstop and the way he ran the bases. And uh, it was an, it's still to this day, it's, it was an indelible memory watching Barry Larkin in college. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so 35th round pick. 36 sorry in 85 uh we know what the draft is like today and you you end up going in the first round later first round is different now as it was then but I mean in in 1985 how do you find out you're taken in a round like that because I know in years before some guys would get a telegram some guys get a phone call uh what, what was it like back then and then does your mind even allow you for a second to think hey I could be a blue jay uh you know I have a 36th round. I don't know. Were there 36 rounds in the draft back then? I don't think it, might it was just you. Late. You were the, you were, a, you were your own round to yourself, a supplemental draft. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was pretty close with uh, one particular scout, a guy named Don Wilkie. <laughs> and Don was uh, pretty, you know, he became pretty legendary in the scouting business. He was with the Blue Jays at the time and Pat Gillick. And so he was came to a lot of games and, and he called me and said that they had drafted me. And, and I, I entertained the smallest of thoughts of signing. I flew up to Toronto with the number one pick that year was Todd Stottlemyre. Oh, a future, and, yeah. a future guest of the program. Hopefully we're, we're, yeah. we're knocking on wood here. We're working on getting him. So good name he was there. great. He, I flew <laughs> up there and they put us at exhibition stadium. We each had a locker and hung a blue Jays uh, Jersey up there and we got to meet the team and I threw batting practice and, uh, and I was, wow. you know, this close, I was like, well, you know, that seems like kind of funny, but I, uh, my mom so said, come on home where you're going to go to school. And, and, uh, that it was the best decision I ever made. You know, I needed to go to college and it allowed me to play at Michigan. And, and then, you know, that, what was great about the USA teams that uh, Ole and I played on uh, and Ben, um, was that those were amateur teams, you know, those, those were, there, there was, weren't any professionals on those teams. And so, uh, you know, it was the best college players from around the country. And that memory that, that Greg talked about going to Millington, Tennessee and sitting down in that hotel, in that lobby, waiting to see who you were going to room with and looking around at, you know, guys you'd read about in baseball America and guys you'd seen in the college world series. And, and um, in knowing we were going to go up against Cuba and Japan and, 
and they had older players and, and it was going to be a challenge. And, um, you know, that was not signing with the Blue Jays allowed all those incredible opportunities. Is, then, is playing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, let, let me, let me mm-hmm. ask you, yeah, yeah. you know, while we were sitting there going through those memories, you went straight, you know, I'm, I'm probably jumping my partner here, but you went straight to the big leagues after, you know, an amazing career, <laughs> what you did in the gold medal game. We'll get into in a minute, but what, how did you relate Cuba to the very next time you pitched in a game was in essence spring training against major leaguers? <laughs> what, you know, where, where did they rank? Because I, you know, obviously got removed from it a little bit early and, you know, you didn't, I didn't, you know, get to see the next step. Well, we missed you. We, we, we needed yeah. you there. And, uh, <laughs> and the, for the gold medal game, brother, you close that one out yourself. Well, the world championships, we needed that closer. But, uh, um, you know, and I think in, in your experience as well, uh, the USA baseball that time together uh, really was, in essence, a, a minor league experience. I, I, you know, the travel, um, the exposure to crowds and playing in different environments, um, you know, the exposure to media and, and having to answer questions and, 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 and playing in, in Cuba in front of, you know, what was it, 25, 50,000 people. And, yeah, it was 50, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, so your path was quick to the big leagues and my path was quick to the big leagues, but there was a lot of experiences that came along in the USA, you know, baseball program that, that provided the foundation to be able to do that. It didn't, it was intimidating to go up against Ricky Henderson in spring training or Jose Canseco, but you had been in an uncomfortable environment before and playing against Cuba and uh, Omar Linares and, and all the great players in the world. And so, yeah, it was, you know, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. I got, yeah. I got to, I got to run down the path real quick. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. So we're in Cuba. So we're the first team, first USA <laughs> team to go to Cuba. And we went in 87 with the Pan Ams and we were preparing for seeing Cuba in the games. And so we went down there and it seemed like it was about three weeks, but I know it was probably about 10, 12 days. Um, Jim, do you remember the game you started? We went on a road trip for some reason. We, we had played in Cuba in front of about 50,000 people a couple nights, and then we went on a road trip, and you got that start. And I will never forget and Victor Mesa dropping a bunt down you first play of the game, and you coming off the mound and making an unbelievable play, and it was a standing ovation in Cuba. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, the first play. Um, you know, if you rem- if you remember, Greg, it, it's it's hard really to describe how enthusiastic the country of Cuba is about baseball, and and how they look at their team as sort of representative of of doing things in a way that the rest of the world should do them. And that's we didn't really understand that at the time. And so there's this passionate, incredible uh, fan base, and um, intimidating team to go play dressed in red hats red jerseys red pants yep. everything red and you know there was a build-up we had a five-game series and I pitched the third game of that series I think you start the first one Oli I got uh, no I got one of the later starts um like game four game five something like that back in Cuba 
Yeah. That was, I hadn't started a game all year. So it was like, wait, you, you're having me do what? Yeah, back, <laughs> that's back, right. Back, back to Victor. Cause that, I mean, they never laid down another bunt on you. That was, that was it. He tried, you, you thwarted the try, made a great play. And it was, it was nuts stand, seeing the standing ovation, you know, in Cuba on the road in front of a packed house. Yeah. It was it was an amazing moment where just you know, I'm sitting on the you know on the bench going, all right, wow, that was that was something to see. Yeah, we sort of won them over. We won that game. It was the first game that we went, and we drove the bus back to the hotel, and the fans were following us, and and um, you know we went from kind of from being the big bad Americans to kind of being the underdog. You know, it kind of switched things around a little bit, so it changed the narrative, but. Yeah, that was a bang-bang play at first base. I remember Victor's helmet flew off and the fans went crazy and they were kind of booing him on the way into the dugout. And, uh, it was, what a crazy atmosphere. So much fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're, uh, it, it's hard to, hard to believe that you made the play. But um, what about uh, – I got to tell you, I, I was traveling around with my son looking at some schools, Brett, and went to Raleigh. USA was playing Cuba. And they had an exhibition game at uh, the, the, the Bull Durham Stadium. And um, uh, Paul Seiler, the head of USA Baseball, takes me around. And, and he's like, you got to meet somebody. I was like, okay. And he takes me into the Cuba locker room before the game, about 10 minutes before the game. And I go walking in, and I'm like, not comfortable at all. And Victor Mesa was managing the team. Wow. And, and he just looks at me, and he goes, Olsen! And starts screaming Olsen. Well, he still speaks no English. And then, he, and all he got out was, where's Abbott? Where's McDonald? You know, wanting to know. And it was like they, they followed our careers because they played against us. And we were down there. Uh, but through the interpreter, it was like, you know, completely followed all three of our careers as well as some other guys, Tino. Um, but, yeah, he said hello. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as we, you know, we played them so much over those two years. We actually ended up, you know, establishing a small bond. Not, we didn't get to spend a lot of time together, but boy, they were, they were incredible. They were Omar Linares, the third baseman. Oh, yeah. You know, we had great players on our team and, and guys like Tino and, and Robin Ventura. And, and uh, but, uh, you know, Omar Linares was the best player on the field and he was our age, you know, and he would have no doubt been a star in the major leagues. Yep. Totally agree with that. Did, did you guys feel like fish out of water down there? I mean, there's so much of the experience that's, that's well cultivated. I mean, not, not maybe more so now, but uh, I just, I can't imagine what that had to feel like going down there and doing that. And then um, does that, does that standing ovation help or hurt that feeling? You'd think it would help, but I mean, at the same time too, it's a pretty uh, raucous, almost like a soccer crowd, I would think. It was, it was, it, it was crazy. It, we, we, I think the bright turn would be kind of, we felt like we were under a microscope. When you say, Greg, I mean, we, we got off the plane and, um, you know, we went to this, this hotel, which I think would be considered fancy there. Um, and, you know, we were 20 years old. We were <laughs> wrestling around, we were fighting, you know, and, and, and doing all this crazy stuff. And it always felt like there was a security guard with a gun not too far away, you know, kind of watching, maybe protecting us, but, but maybe, you know, kind of keeping us in line as well. And, and, uh, you know, you guys, I, I, I was born missing my right hand. I, I played a little bit differently than other people. And, and uh, that was an intense 
curiosity uh, when we got to Cuba. I, I remember coming off the plane and, and kind of being one of 25 guys, and, 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 but the, somehow their advance word had gotten there and, and the Cuban press uh, rushed up and they took pictures of me holding a suitcase and took pictures of my right hand. And, and, and when we got to our first practice, there was, you know, uh, TV cameras and everything. And so um, there was this real curiosity in, in Cuba about somebody playing the way I played I think because it's, you know, those players are groomed at such an early age to be superstars and to be great baseball players. I was told by an interpreter you know, that a kid like you in Cuba wouldn't be given the chance to play. The idea that you might play on a national team is is so foreign to them. And I think that's why they cheer for you so hard. And that's really mm-hmm. what that standing ovation was kind of about. You know, there, there was just, you know, they didn't understand, you know, somebody not be somebody not growing up, you know, as a five star athlete, so to speak. Can, can I ask what other adaptations you made for different sports? Because, I mean, we all could see what you did as a pitcher, you know, the adaptations to hold the glove and, and field and everything you did. But let's say you're playing quarterback, you're you're running the point in basketball or even just a pickup game. What are the adaptations you made to make yourself uh, such a good athlete? Oh, and a, and a six handicaps. I, I, I looked yesterday. Ah, yeah, nice, nice. I, I'm Jim. Eight. <laughs> Eight. <laughs> oh, that's such a big difference. Six point one. I saw it. Yeah. Well, we miss you back here, Oli. The games yeah. are, are no less intense. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I hold the, I held a baseball bat, you know, just kind of with both hands here like that. And I, I uh, same way I hold a golf club. You know, I do try to incorporate both sides of the body to the best I can. I don't swing one-handed. In uh, um, football, I just used my right forearm. I got down a little bit lower to take the snap from the center. And, and um, you know, honestly – it was Brandon, the, the adjustments, the adaptations were very small. And a lot of people, you know, I would, I, people would write these really flowery articles and do these, you know, what I was courageous or, you know, motivational or, and honestly, it was, it, a lot of it was exactly what you're talking about. Just making the smallest of adjustments, just doing things slightly different and having great coaches and people around me who sort of encouraged that way of thinking. And, and, you know, and the rest, it was just, you know, working hard. And, and, and so, you know, creativity really opens a lot of doors. And that was important for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I got to be honest, you know, rooming with you for a summer, um, you know, just watching on a daily basis. It, it just the little adaptations that you say <laughs> are, are still just amazing to me. You know, oh. just w- watching you play golf. It's like, you know, you're hitting the ball as far as I am. You're obviously way better around the greens than I am. But uh, it says a lot to your athletic ability and your your ability, you know, like, yeah, you call them small adjustments, but no. Well, I was lucky, though. I was, I appreciate it, but I was born this way, you know. It wasn't like I had a hand and lost it and had to figure things out again, you know, and like, you know, a lot of great veterans who go away and have to – you know, reconfigure their lives, so to speak. And for, for me, it was, this is all I ever knew. This is, you know, how I learned to tie my shoes. It's how I learned to button a shirt. And, and, and so I can't say who's an all, maybe my way's easier. I, I don't know. It's just the way I, I did. I, I, golf still seems really hard to me, but uh, uh, you know, I enjoy it. And I love sports. I really wanted to fit in. Um, I wanted to be a part of something growing up. 
And, you know, sports gave me that opportunity. So I had to, if the only way I could do it is to do things differently. Yeah. Well, you're a great athlete. It goes to that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sure. Got a uh, side story. You want to talk about the, uh, the ball you threw out of the hotel in Cuba? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't remember how it got out there, but it, <laughs> what, that, how, what story were we on? <laughs> that, <laughs> I, I don't know why we were throwing a baseball at each other in a close hotel room. Um, I don't know. To begin with, I don't know why we would have a, an open window on the 14th floor. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of things to it that you still kind of look at going, yeah, and then somehow we're throwing the ball at each other and I duck and it goes out of a 14th floor window of a hotel in Cuba. So that was about, you know, cause you knew that we were being watched everywhere we went. We had, you know, if there was two, if Jim and I went for a walk and, you know, tried to find something different to eat, um, we had a, a guy following us and yeah. you could try to take for a, go for a little jog or something. And he would go for a jog. It was, it was, you knew it and you recognized it early on, but the idea that a baseball goes flying out of a 14th story hotel in Cuba <laughs> and Jim and I just kind of looked at each other and it was like, I don't know what to do. Right. And I, I do remember looking, looking as we're laying under the beds, looking at each other going, this, we did it now. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to jail. <laughs> we are going to jail. We are in a boatload of trouble. Here. Have you guys heard the Chuck Knobloch joke? about cuba no oh the the joke was that they wanted to send him down to cuba so he could overthrow castro <laughs> i can't tell you who told me that one i'll just say he was a uh, big league manager who played with him and um That's pretty good born to secrecy but yeah they always joked that he could go down there and overthrow castro so uh that's the only cuba joke i have for baseball but um yeah i i have to imagine uh you're thinking, okay, they're going to find who threw this and they're going to send us out of, send us out of here or worse. Yeah. But within five minutes, one of the guys that's been following us around knocks on the door and we're like, Jim and I, right? I'm not getting out from under the bed. Like, <laughs> they're going to have to come out and drag me out of here. I am yep. not answering the door and letting the guys handcuff me right there. Right. And finally, after <laughs> about 10 minutes of knocking, I was like, okay, uncle, when <laughs> open the door and the guy just hands me the baseball and walks away. Yeah. And I'm like, going, okay. first of all, they, within five minutes, they were up at the room. So they knew what window it flew out of. And the baseball guys having the baseball would probably add up. Yeah. Oh, no, I was fine with that. But I mean, there, <laughs> there was 20 of our rooms. It was like, how do you pick ours? Yeah. Uh, you guys were under surveillance, apparently. We were, we were, I would, we were 19 years old. I mean, 20 years old at that time, you know, going up against those guys. And, and wow. uh, it was pretty amazing. I remember getting a night off and, and everyone had told you about the Cuban cigars and you got to have a, you know, you go to Cuba. I had an uncle who had me bring back a box of Cuban cigars. I thought I was, you know, going to get arrested for contraband or something. And <laughs> yeah. We were walking around and they, every corner they have like a cigar stand. And so we bought one and, I took about four puffs off that thing and damn near fell over it. <laughs> so strong. I don't think I'd ever had a cigar in my life. That <laughs> was, was so many great memories of that trip. And, and it, you know, it wasn't glamorous. We didn't travel like tourists or anything. We traveled as a group and, you know, the food was okay. I mean, we, yeah. we were pretty happy to get back to the United States at the end of that trip. 
at, when, at the, when the dog out front of the hotel disappeared and we had meat suddenly downstairs, I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm eating rice and bread for the rest of this trip. <laughs> it was, wow. at, at that age, are you guys old enough to understand the, the meaning of going up against guys that age from Cuba? I mean, the gravity of it or the, the meaningfulness of it? Or are you just so young and upstart and, and just ready to go that you have to kind of think about it after the fact? Yeah. I think um, I would. I didn't know. I wish I had known a little bit more of the history of of communism and, and of socialism and yeah. uh, the influences of, of what led to the conditions that we witnessed there. You know, really kind of a throwback to the to the fifties. You know, the cars and the right. buildings, and it's it's like time had stopped. And and so that really, for the first time in my life, you know. Uh, it may have been the first foreign travel I think I ever did besides, you know, Canada or something. I'd never been to Europe mm -hmm. or anything like that. So, um, and it was just a, such a shock to see life, you know, people living like that. And, and so I didn't know anything about it. I wish I would have had a better background on that. You know, Fidel Castro came to our first game, wow. um, walked on the field, shook all of our hands, uh, and you didn't really know how to how to take that, you know, that he was doing that, surrounded by guys with machine guns, and, and, and it was just, it was absolutely incredible. I, I don't think being older would have helped much with that either. That's a surreal experience, whether you're 20 or 40. Right. Yeah. So oh, I got right. myself, my, my favorite story of that whole thing is we got back, we, our whole goal that summer was to play in the Pan American Games. And then that was the end of our time together that summer. And we had to finish... Uh, I think in the top two or three to, to make the Olympics next year to qualify. So that was, you know, we had some pressure on that team to do that. And, and Ole had a great summer and, and uh, you know, we had a couple other guys who were, Chris Carpenter was incredible. Um, mm -hmm. But we, so we got to the Pan American games in Indianapolis and I was elected to carry the flag at the opening ceremonies in, in, in Indianapolis, right? So we went to the Speedway. Uh, there was this huge, enormous crowd in the grandstands and all the teams paraded out onto the Speedway. And, and the United States was the last team to go out there. And I was carrying the flag out in front of our delegation. And uh, in the lead up to that, you know, I had to do a press conference and some people came up to me, you know, some people asked me, they said, hey, if they didn't know anything about me, who I was, what was going on. They just said, Jim, we, we just read that you pitched in Cuba and you met Fidel Castro a few weeks ago. You know, what could you compare him uh, to Bo Schembechler, your head football coach at Michigan? And I said, <laughs> and I was young and stupid. <laughs> and I said, well, you know. Uh, they're both kind of intimidating presences. They're no. both, uh, you know, they're different, of course, but they're, you know, they're both kind of, you know, it's, there's an aura about them, right? So I don't know. It gets in the paper somehow back in Detroit. And I didn't know anything about this, but I finish up the summer baseball-wise, come back to Ann Arbor, feeling like I've had this great summer, these great experiences. I walk into the athletic department, and there's the football uh, equipment manager who I'm really close with and who was one of Bo's best friends. And he looks at me and he goes, what the hell did you do? I said, what, do you, what, what do you mean? He goes, you compared Fidel Castro to Bo Schembechler? I said, I said, no, I said, I didn't really mean it that way. 
And he goes, he said, Chef Beckler is pissed. <laughs> he can't, you better hide. Don't come walking through the athletic department anymore. <laughs> so I avoided the athletic department for months. And in the freezing cold, that was the kind of place I would cut through to go to the baseball field. Finally, I was one, so cold one day, I just cut through. And here, sure enough, here comes Shem Beckler down the stairs. And he sees me and he goes, God damn it, Abbott, get over here. <laughs> and he got about this far from my face. And he just started screaming at me. He goes, what's this Castro bullshit? <laughs> and uh, he just was, he was really mad about it. And so that, that's, that was the culmination of my Pan-American Cuban experience. <laughs> that, that was your rookie uh, media training symposium <laughs> right. all at once. Don't take the bait. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, yeah, I got to well. give you one. I'm cutting you off again, brother. No, it's good. It's good. Do it. Give me, uh, you told me two great stories for my book, going from the gold medal game to spring training and you guys getting it, getting it a brawl. <laughs> <laughs> right you want to run through that one for everybody well my first experience you know I made the team out of spring training I, I was in opening day I went from the Olympics to like you know opening day Anaheim California big league jersey on and I'm you know just I can't wipe the smile off my face right I mean it's just the big leagues and and, and we're playing the White Sox uh, we started losing the game but I really still couldn't even get that upset about it but we had a very veteran team. Uh, Doug Rader was our manager and Burt Blylevin was on that team and Lance Parrish, Wally Joyner. Uh, we brought in a guy named Bob McClure, a lefty pitcher, 17 hey, years. With the, he's with the Twins, or at least he was just recently as their pitching advisor. Oh, the greatest guy in the world. Yeah. He survived on, you know, he couldn't throw very hard, but he, he just survived on, you know, being smart and intelligent. Anyway, he gives up a home run to Harold Baines. Lefty supposed to get out of lefty. Gives up another hit, gives up another hit. My first game in the major leagues, Bob McClure drills Yvonne Calderon in the back. Oh, man. Clearly on purpose. Calderon rips off his helmet, runs on the field, fires the helmet at, at Bob. Bob ducks. And all of a sudden, my first experience, my first time on a major league field we're in a bench clearing brawl <laughs> and I'm looking around going, what the heck is Raider, our managers fighting people. And I, you know, I, I was still calling him coach. <laughs> oh no. And, you know, first person I ran into was, was Carlton Fisk, you know, the hall of fame catcher. And it yeah. was just like, you gotta be kidding me. What is going on here? And uh, nothing really amounted of it. It wasn't, you know, it was one of those baseball fights that not much happens, but uh, I, I, it was a big difference to go from Seoul, Korea, <laughs> To Anaheim, California, in the major leagues. Oh, that's funny. I love that story. How such a classic. All right, Brandon, what do you got? I've been keeping you quiet for so long. You're doing well, great. So you play with Casey Close. You're represented by Scott Boris. Uh, was there ever any kind of funny back and forth about that? Because he's now, I think he's still a pretty well-known agent too. But, uh, you know, Boris is pretty good at his job too. Yeah, you know, I... Casey wasn't an agent when I decided he was still, um, or if he was, he was just getting started in Cleveland. Yep. I, I forget which uh, agency he was with. He was with a big time agency. Uh, and Scott was just a little more established, not much, but, but a little more established than Casey. Um, and I went with Scott, you know, because a lot of, because of the USA baseball experience and, and sure. uh, Ole went with Jeff Morad, um, but, uh, you know, Scott had represented uh, some guys who were on our Pan-American team. And at that point, his niche was sort of 
doing well for guys in the draft. I mean, he was really sort of reconfiguring signing bonuses uh, for guys like Andy Bennis and, and, uh, and different guys. So, you know, I, I thought, Hey, he's doing a great job for these guys. And, and, and maybe that's why, but Casey en- ended up being uh, uh, an incredible agent and doing extremely well. And uh, I've, I'm very, that Michigan team that I played on it, it has some incredibly successful people outside of, baseball and I think maybe I should have studied harder than actually <laughs> than gone to the weight room uh, you did okay uh, so I, I want to ask you a couple things about your big league debut first of all um, you you dueled against a pretty darn good lefty that day and secondly I'm just I'm just running over the box score Dante Bichette was playing center field that day seriously yeah. Dante yeah yeah he was uh, Dante was a hell of an athlete I'm so used to him like I'm used to him like end of the career Rockies Reds right field just hide your eyes get him to the plate kind of guy but seeing him in center field I'm just thinking man that's that's a blast from the past oh Dante when he first came up was was a unbelievable athlete and and you know he he moved really well and and, uh uh you know ended up having an incredible career really he he Mm -hmm. played for a long time I just saw something on Twitter of him uh, talking about hitting and I saw that too. All, yeah. All these people saying, this is what you should do in terms of hitting. And it's, it's, you know, he was kind of young and, and, and to, to think that he's, you know, became such a professional hitter and, and so smart is, is really great. And so Langston, you, you're up against Mark Langston that day and he goes really? all nine. Unbelievable. No, there, I mean, Lang, Langston's part of the golf game out in Southern California that, and so it's just funny that, uh, you know, years later, you, yeah, you guys, yeah. Are- well, he's one of my best friends out here and you know, he's, he does the angel games now as a broadcaster, but he was with the Mariners and you remember him only in, in high school, you know, we kind of like, he struck out, you know, he leads the league in strikeouts and, and he had that high leg kick, just got everything out of his body. He just, you know, it, Every, you know, he, he was a great athlete, uh, but man, he worked hard. And yeah, I, I didn't last as long in that game as, as uh, Langer did. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. 12, 12 and 12 in your first year in the big leagues. I mean, thoroughly impressive. You ended up, I just kind of ran through your numbers. You're, you know, other than 89, where you throw 180 innings, you were 200, over 200 innings, 90, 91, 92, 93. And then we had the strike short in 94. That's just unbelievable. Well, nowadays, but, you know, if that used to be the standard. If you didn't pitch 200 innings as a starting pitcher, you sort of, you know, you, you, the, the one thing you could control is how, you know, how many innings you pitched. I mean, in wins and losses. And I had a couple of years where I pitched well and didn't have a great record. but. Um, you know, to be a reliable starting pitcher, you pitch 200 innings, you know, nowadays it's, I don't, not many guys do that anymore. It's not the standard, but uh, you know, sound like an old man back in the day, you know, <laughs> do you yeah. ever, uh, do you ever let yourself think about how different your career would have been? Let's say, even if you sign with the blue Jays or, or whatever, but uh, playing in the minors, as opposed to playing in college, you obviously did a, took a path that was very rewarding and you have a lot of pride in it and justifiably so. But do you ever think about how it would have been different or what it might have been like to, you know, maybe you play three years in the minors with the Blue Jays. And then uh, who knows if you're part of their rotation with, I think, David Wells at that time and Jimmy Key. And they had some pretty good pitching, too. I mean, do you let yourself play that what if game at all and how things would have been different in terms of preparation? 
I mean, you hit the ground running, like, like Oli said, average 200 innings those first five years. Um, but I, I think the what if game can always be kind of fun too. You know, I don't, Brandon, to be honest, I don't really think much like that. I, I yeah. um, you know, my, my career ended sooner than I wanted it to, sure. uh, you know, I was retired in my early thirties and my last couple of years were a struggle. Uh, and I would love to have changed that. You know, I would love to have pitched, you know, longer and later into, into my thirties. Um, but I wouldn't trade the experiences that I had for anything, you know, right. from, from the USA experience, uh, you know, to playing for the angels, I got to play on the West coast. I got to play on the East coast with the Yankees, which is just an incredibly different experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I played in Chicago, which felt yeah. like close to home played in Milwaukee. I played with a lot of great players. Um, and I don't look at it in terms of, for a while I was disappointed. I'll be honest. I was disappointed at the, at the last couple of years after I retired. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking back on it now, I wouldn't trade a thing, you know, I, I won't go to the hall of fame, but in terms of, of breadth of experience, even the high, even the lows, when I lost 18 games, when I, uh, you know, really struggled. I, I feel like it, it's kind of made me who I am, and, and I, I try to be proud of that. So you, like like always said, you threw 180-plus innings that first year. You've got guys who are up-down guys. You've got guys who debut in the middle of the season. You just kind of hit the ground and went. Um, what was your I belong here moment? Mm, good one. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question because it um, – <clears throat> One of my favorite stories, I played the, you know, the Tigers were my team growing up, the Detroit Tigers, you know, sure. Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, uh, Mark Fidrich, you know, all those guys. Um, and Jack Morris was sort of a, a guy I looked up to. And, and uh, I had met Jack in college. He came and worked out at Michigan a couple of times when the, I think there was a lockdown or something, but uh, I was in the outfield in Anaheim my rookie year. And we had batting practice and Jack was pitching that night. Uh, and he was just walking around the outfield in his warm-up jacket. I don't know what he was doing, imagery or something. <laughs> but I was sitting there shagging balls, and Jack kind of sauntered over and, and stood next to me, and he, he said, so this is, this is like verbatim what he said. He goes, so you made it, huh, kid? <laughs> and I said, yeah, it looks like I did. And he goes, the trick is to stay. <laughs> and I said, the trick is to stay. And you know, that's, that is the trick is to stay. And, and it feels like, I don't know how you felt, but it, it always felt like a fight to stay, you know, to, to keep that world going. So there were times, yes, when I felt like, you know, 91, I won 18 games. Um, you know, I really felt established and I felt confident going out to the mound. I think that's when you feel like you belong, not when you feel nervous and scared, but when you can't mm-hmm. wait to get out there on the mound yeah. and, and, and do what you feel like you can do against the best hitters in the world. So I shared a radio show with Jack for a year here in the twin cities. And so I can hear his voice saying exactly what you said. And that, that resonates with me. Um, Jack was fifth, great. fifth place in rookie of the year that year. Do you remember who won that, that I'm, I'm having a trouble remembering who won that one. Uh, some Connie Thummer from Baltimore, I think. Some, <laughs> <laughs> relied on his junk. You know, I, you know, I just threw a bunch of curveballs from what yeah, I, I guess. Remember. Yeah, he's. I wonder he what he's Ken doing. Griffey too. Wonder what he's doing right now. Yeah, uh, we have to catch up with him. All right, brother. We got like about. <laughs> I got fifteen minutes. I don't want to run you too late because I'm right. sure you see time. 
Um, knowing you, I like, like I said, Chuck, you've, you've been playing a lot in January. Um, be totally remiss. And this goes to the whole, you wonder what the big leagues are like. You threw the no-hitter against a great Indians team in 94. The week before, you told me the story. And it, I mean, that go, this goes to Major League Baseball at its finest, the roller coaster ride of the day-to-day. Um, can you tell us that story? Yeah, I mean, the no-hitter, I think, was probably the highlight of my career and, and, and cool because, it, you know, a lot of people latched onto it. Do it in Yankee Stadium, pinstripes, and that whole thing adds a little bit of uh, depth to it. Uh, but I had it came against the Indians, really good hitting team, Lofton, Baerga, Bell, Ramirez had just got called up <laughs> to that team, Tommy, uh, Alomar, you know, up and down the lineup. That they were they were stacked, and and um, you know I pitched against them in Cleveland the start before, and that doesn't happen very often where you start against a team twice in a row. But and I got shelled in Cleveland, just got <laughs> absolutely crushed. I don't think I made it out of the third inning. I don't remember the exact stats, but it was really, it was really disappointing. And, and uh, you know, so I, I ripped off my jersey and pants and, and put on running shoes and shorts and I went running. I left the stadium and kind of got in a little trouble with my manager, Buck Showalter, for leaving. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I had to kind of reconfigure myself for the next game. And I, I, I you know, six days later, because we had an off day, Saturday day game, Yankee Stadium. I loved pitching day games. I really liked just getting up and playing instead of sitting around all day waiting. And I got there and I said, you know what? I'm going to be a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit easier uh, on myself. Matt Noakes was the catcher that day. I loved throwing to Maddie. We were going to throw a few more breaking balls than we did the time before. And the game started, man. I was walking a few guys and it didn't feel like a perfect game at all. A couple hard hit balls. And, and I was, kind of joking with Cam and Nikki, one of my best friends on my University of Michigan teammate. I would, he was doing really well. And he had this kind of cocky run when he would run off after he had a good inning. And I, I was doing that in that game for like the first four innings. I would imitate Cammy. If we, you know, if I got out of the inning, I'd like jog off like him. And Jimmy Key was on the, Jimmy Key was on the bench just dying laughing. Like, you know, oh my God. And then all of a sudden the fifth inning hits. Looked up at the scoreboard, no hit, you know, and everything changed. Like all that lightheartedness, all that fun, you know, teammates start moving away from you. And then, you know, that ninth inning, uh, you know, Carlos Baerga, ground ball to Randy Velarde. I'm giving you some 90s names here. Yes, I <laughs> uh, love it. Over to Donnie Mattingly, one of my favorite teammates and people ever. And, um, you know, it's just, it was just epic. It, it, you just felt like you were... Mm-hmm on fire, you know, just so excited. The fans, they wouldn't leave curtain calls, Matty Noakes, you know, it was just an amazing day. What uh, did we've talked about it because it's just, you know, once in a lifetime game and you went through it all nine innings. You told me Lofton bunted on you in like the eighth. The ninth. Ooh, yeah. even better. He was, he was the leadoff hitter in the ninth inning. And it was four to nothing and he bunted, which, you know, was part of Kenny's game. I mean, you know, to be fair, and it was still close. I mean, but I would have hated to lose that no hitter on a bunt. And he, so he bunted the ball down the third base line, and, you know, we were playing Boggs was our third Boggs. Boggs, he was playing back. 
and it, it stayed fair. He's, he, he, it wouldn't even have been a play. And, and, uh, but it trickled followed on the third baseline. And, and, uh, I love the Yankee fans, man, because they rained down on him from all over the stadium. They're booing and going crazy and yelling and screaming. They know their game. And, and, uh, Kenny, I've seen the replay. He got a kind of a sheepish little grin and he, you know, so I don't know, but ground out to second base, but yeah, it was the ninth inning. And the thing is, is Kenny Lofton wore me out in my career. He didn't need to bunk. He probably would have no. done better if he just would have swung away. Kit. Can you oh, take man, story. Can you take me through going back to California after how things went leaving California? Um, you know, you're traded, you had like arbitration coming up and you know, a few things. Uh, was it weird to go back? And then you ended up signing there as a free agent anyway, so it couldn't have been that weird. Well, California was home to me. Um yeah. it was it was it felt great to go back, <laughs> actually. They, you know, I got traded and in, in to back to them when they were, you know, Timmy Salmon, Garrett Anderson, Jimmy Edmonds. I mean, they were on the cusp of something really special. We were really, they were way up in, yep. the, in the standings, killing everybody. It was, it was the first year of the wild card. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and so I got traded to them and I pitched pretty well for them. Um, and, but Seattle had traded for Andy Bennis and they had traded for a couple of guys because they were trying to make a run at the wild card. They had basically conceded the division to the Angels, and we had this epic collapse. I think there's a Jose Cruz Jr. trade. They got like uh, Spoljarek and Timlin or something too. Yeah, they so they kept fighting. You know, in, in a season where they were way back, they probably would have you know maybe not made those moves. Yep. Uh, a little bit like the Braves this year, who didn't right. give up and, and could have you know kind of thrown in the towel. Um, so that made it exciting. And, and unfortunately we lost, uh, but California was my home. You know, the people, my wife's from here. Um, my, a lot of good friends were on that team and, and uh, ran the team and the organization. So it felt good to be home. Uh, I was disappointed that I didn't do better when I came back. And I mean, I, it's not, it's, I don't want to dwell on it, but what was that 1996 season like? Because um, you know, you had been through a lot, you'd proven a lot. Um, but that's also, you're, you're at the peak level of baseball and things aren't going well. How do you keep yourself going? Cause you, I mean, you made 27 appearances, 23 starts that year. It's not often that you get to make that many trips when, uh, when things are just kind of going sideways. Yeah, it was brutal. It, I went two and 18 that year. Um, it was the classic story of, of, uh, you know, when you lose, when you, when you're one and five or one and six and then two and 10, or you're trying to win two or three games at a time, you're trying to catch mm -hmm. up all at once and, and your head just starts spinning. And, and, and I just sort of lost what made me, I couldn't transition. You know, I didn't have the fastball that I had earlier in my career. I kind of had to be perfect with location and, and that was never who I sort of was. Um, but Personally, it was brutal. Marcel Latchman, our manager, was fired that year, and I, I sort yep. of felt some responsibility for that. Um, uh, but I, I discovered, you know, success in athletics had covered up a lot in my life for a long time, right? So I was born missing my right hand. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be on a team. And all of a sudden I was good. You know, I was, I was good at football and I was good at baseball and, and I had success. And all of a sudden these pats on the back and these accolades, you know, made brought this sense of, of, of self-esteem, 
you know, that maybe I didn't reconcile some of the other things as well as I should have. And that losing 18 games and failing uh, that publicly uh, and that personally um, made me kind of think a lot about where my self-esteem was based and, and how I thought of myself in, with my family, how I thought of myself in my community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as brutal as it was, uh, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a wreck. You know, I had to figure some things out and, and, and I can't say that I, I would look back on that fondly. I wish I'd have went right. uh, 18 and two, right. uh, but it, but it was what it was. Yeah. Not many guys can claim to have won 18 in the season and lost 18. In another, I think uh, Doug Drabeck around that time was another one. I was looking it up, but I definitely well, don't want to end it on that. I definitely no, don't want to end well, it. That was, um, God, that was so well put. It really was. Cause yeah. we've all, we've all you know, you get to the major leagues, you're at the top of the world, and you, we all get kicked, you know. And 96 was one of my worst years. It was just you, you're doing the same thing. You're looking around the room going, how long am I going to be here? I was. Um, yeah, and your, your sense of self-value really takes a huge hit. Um, God, that was – man, you, what you just said was, was – uh, really deep and I, I, I do I, I thoroughly appreciate it because I know exactly what you went through and it's just uh thanks for sharing that really I, I do want to ask what it looked like on the other side because you don't play in 97 but you come back um, you have some success with the White Sox and the Brewers and then that's it what did the other side look like what did you learn from that as a as a, a player and as a human being and, and how you applied it um you know what, that people aren't really watching that closely. (laughs) (laughs) People don't care. right? I mean, I thought when I was two and 18, that I walked into a restaurant in my hometown, it was plastered on my forehead, two and 18, two and 18, you know, that that guy sucked, whatever. And yeah, there are a few sports fans that, you know, that may give you a hard time, but people are going about their lives and you're still incredibly blessed to be playing a game for a living. And, Mm -hmm. and, and it goes so fast and it is even the worst of it is still incredible. Right. And, 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 and that's what I sort of learned that, um, I, I've been doing some speaking, uh, you know, since then I started to speak and, and, um, one thing that really amazes me is how much, baseball means to people you know it, you don't appreciate it when you're playing like you talked about Ollie, you're, it's a very insulated world right you protect yourself when you're there you go from the stadium to the bus to the hotel and you come back and you don't spread out so much you protect yourself a lot but when when you're retired you've got to face the world and and traveling to Iowa or um you know, some remote place like Nebraska, Omaha, you know, some, some place like that. The- <laughs> uh, but you find out how much people watch every team. They know every player, you know, yeah. they, 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 and, and they don't care if you're two and 18, they don't care if you're 18 and two, they just love the game and they want to talk about the game and they love the people who play the game. If you try, if you try to be a decent person. Yeah, that yeah. was me. Yeah, and easy on Nebraska and Iowa, you know. And um, Minnesota's right there. So yeah. I saw you headed that route, you, and I was you like. nailed oh. all of us. But, I mean, you know, he's from Michigan, so I know he, <laughs> he means it in the best possible way. Um, <laughs> having been with you out in Southern California for about 20 years, amazing man, amazing <laughs> family, 
I hear, I heard through the, at least from some people that had you as their, their speaker that you are just unbelievable. Um, and so congratulations on that. What, uh, what else you got going on, Jim? Oh, thanks, Oli. Um, you know, it's been kind of quiet, to be honest, with, with COVID. The, you know, my tra traveling and speaking has obviously not been as busy as before. Hopefully that's kind of coming back a little bit. But uh, I have two daughters, as you know, Maddie and Ella. Maddie, uh, went, they both went to the University of Michigan, which I've been incredibly proud of. And they both did <laughs> one played volleyball, the other one played water polo. And so, um, you know, we've been wrapped up in that. You know, we spent a lot of time at home during the, during the pandemic. Um, try to mix in a few golf games with all the old shysters out here uh, at the Big Canyon Country Club where uh, we had some fun matches. Team play is going on right now, Oli. It always brings back memories of you and I trying to take people down. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I'm very – everything's good. Um, you know, my – I went back to Michigan, saw my parents, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm really, I, I count my blessings every day. Now you owned, you owned John Lieber as a hitter. Uh, <laughs> people keep saying that and tell me to ask you about it. Uh, what would a, what would a plate appearance for Jim Abbott have looked like against Mr. Greg Olson? Oh, geez. If, I mean, that curveball, I'd have been, I, I, I might've cried or soiled my pants or something. I don't even know. I mean, he it's hard to on describe, and I say this all the time because Greg has a lot of friends back here, and and we talk about his name comes up often, uh, especially on the ninth hole when we start looking at all those trees over there on the right, what we used to call Olson <laughs> Woods. Uh, but <laughs> I see this. <laughs> I tell those guys all the time. Uh, it's hard to describe how good Ole was. We really that curveball was just just unbelievable, and it's hard to describe how hard it is to hit. I mean, you know. <laughs> Greg Maddox made me look like a fool. He threw an 85 mile an hour fastball down the plate. I, I just took it and I said, well, I could hit that, right? Throw that one again. And then he threw it. What looked like was that same pitch, like same arm slot, same everything. I said, oh, here it comes, a little sinker. And I swung and missed it by a little sinker. And then he threw me a changeup that I thought was the same pitch. And I missed that by two feet. And so I, I, against Ole, I would have just quit. So you were two for 21, all in the same year, 99? All, well, I only played in the National League for, you know, yeah. the Brewers for that same, for that time. But uh, yeah, two hits, uh, I, both off Lieber, one in Milwaukee and uh, one in uh, Chicago, uh, which was so fun to play in Wrigley Field and get a base hit. I heard uh, you had a triple in spring training, though. Of Rick Russell. Yeah, he Russell. dropped one down, laid the head down, hit way over Willie McGee's head. <laughs> That's hard to do. He's fast. Yeah, he's really fast. And that, you know, but with my speed, it was easy to get to third. There you Stand go. Stand up triple, by the way. Didn't even slide. <laughs> Did Willie fall over or something? We need more context here. <laughs> oh, <that's so> good. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, we can catch some of these uh, Greg Olson highlights on YouTube. He's got some curveballs on there that'll make your jaw drop. You can also check out, uh, that 90s baseball pod on YouTube. This video here is on there. You're either watching it now live or hopefully if you're listening to us in your car, you'll check us out on YouTube on Access Twins. But uh, man, Jim, thank you so much for carving out the time yeah. for us today. Thanks, Jimmy. Well, Brandon, Oli, thank you guys. Uh, Greg, <laughs> one of my favorite teammates ever and I've been a great friend and love his family. And, and uh, uh, it's been an honor to join you guys and toss around some 90s names. Yeah, yeah. that's favorite favorite thing for me to do and you guys make it so easy so uh, you can follow him brother anytime you're uh 
anytime you're available, we'd love to have you back. You're yeah, for sure. One of the best yeah. in the game. And, and uh, I will say that uh, the one night in Baltimore, <laughs> since you threw me such a high praise, the one night in Baltimore, I think the first time we saw you in 89, we made a run at running out of bats. You were running cutters <laughs> in on righties and they'd never seen it. And it was just <laughs> the trash cans were full all over the place of just shredded lumber. It was, I'm just sitting there going, dude, you got to look for, no, and it was like, look for the cutter. And I was like, I am. It's still running up my hands. <laughs> you wiped us out the first time I think we saw you in Baltimore, but it was. Uh, oh, man. Well, thank you, Oli. Oh, can I show you guys something more real quick? Yes. Hold on. Please do. Please do. I was going to say, Oli, it's easy for you to say, Mr. Mr. Look for the curveball, too. So, you know, it's. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's. It's one of those where you're just sitting there and you're watching it from the side going. How? How? Yeah. Uh oh. He's got. He's got some lumber. This is my signed Greg Olson bat that I keep uh, with my collection over there. I've got a few Robin Ventura, Paul Molitor, and Greg Olson. I'm not exactly, I know he has a home run in his yep. career. Do you have one or two? How many did you hit? I just got one hit, one home run. That was it. Wow. <laughs> so that I have uh, only this is my office where I come out every day and work out and watch TV. And uh, so I, I have my memento of you and, uh, you know, Greg Olson, here's the ultimate compliment in baseball. Brian Downing, uh, uh, maybe an 80s name, maybe, uh, was one of the toughest teammates I ever had. And he was not one to pass out compliments. He really, truly, he was, he was great, but he was quiet. He was businesslike. And he, Greg struck him out on a curveball. And he came back to the dugout and he had this look in his eyes and he said, that's legit. That that's a legit <laughs> right there. <laughs> and, and and that from, from him, you know, he's one of those guys who didn't give credit to anybody. But uh, anyway, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Well, I wish I would have been prepared. I got a Greg autographed baseball card in the mail this week. The old stadium club with the funny colors on the bottom. We'll show that next week. Um, right. Again, thank you so much to Jim. You can follow him on Twitter at j abbott um. He's Greg Olson at Greg Olson thirty. I'm Brandon Warren saying thank you so much for checking out that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins, and we'll catch you next week. Peace.